The teaching text for today comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 23, verses 1 through 28. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath, you blind men. For which is greater, the gift of the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of a cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness." So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, church. We are in this series where we look at some of the words that Jesus spoke while he walked uh, among us. This is really, really important. When God speaks, uh, so much happens. He spoke when he created <laughs> And when he speaks today, he is still recreating, new creating in us. He is addressing things, bringing healing. 
And hearing his words might be the most important discipline, the most important thing that you can cultivate in your life of spiritual growth and maturity. And so you can hear his words, you can hear his voice through so many different things, particularly this summer we're looking at the words of Jesus and how they still speak to us today. And so uh, we're in Matthew uh, and we're going to get going. Let me pray for us very, very briefly. God, may your word land uh, in our hearts today in fertile soil, soil that is receptive. May it produce fruit in our lives. May you bring freedom and healing and hope as you speak to our hearts today, we pray. Amen. So uh, Mark Twain once listened to a wealthy businessman who professed uh, the Christian faith uh, talk about how he would like to travel to the Middle East and to read the Ten Commandments over the land from the top of Mount Sinai. And I love his response. He responded to this man and said, why don't you just stay at home and keep them? You've heard stories like this. Let's fly in helicopters and sprinkle olive oil that that was produced from the Mount of Olives over the city in some act of declaration and call to sanctification. Now, I'm not saying if you've done any of this that you are being a hypocrite or criticizing it. I'm, I'm, I've, I've prayed on, on many a mountaintop, and those are sacred uh, experiences, beautiful. Um, I, I'm just saying that if I trust in those things to catalyze the kingdom, I might be misplacing my energy. I'm saying that the power of the Christian faith is not in claiming it, it's in living it. I'm saying that the power of the kingdom is not primarily in the declaration thereof in my life, but in my life's surrender to the king. Now, it may include the declaration and the claims, but it is definitely not in that alone. Remember the famous words of Jesus. This is how they will know that you are my disciples. That you declare it from the mountaintops. That's not what it says. It says, no, that you love one another. It is also not in scripture that it is the olive oil from the Holy Land that leads us to repentance. But the experience of God's kindness towards us. But hypocrisy has many faces, and uh, those of us uh, who cry out for righteousness in our land often forget that the coming of the kingdom begins in my heart, my heart. It is the politician fighting for conservative Christian policies, but privately violating ethical codes. It is the pastor who lives an opulent indulgence off the money of uh, the, the people who they're supposed to love who are suffering and poor. It is the celebrity Christian couple who are outspoken about their faith and their values, but privately their lives are falling apart. These seem to be easy targets, and that might be true, but it is no different from me dragging my kids to church every Sunday and living the rest of the week in a way that makes them resent the way that I treat them and love them. Or those who scream justice and march in protests for systemic reform, but we're not willing to sacrifice anything personally. Or those who call the efforts towards change superficial or leftist. And that all we have to do is convert people to faith 
and that'll be the, the solution, but, but, but they don't admit that much of the harm that has been caused up until now to oppressed and minority communities were done at the hands of those who claim to be people of faith. Some of us want the fruit of the kingdom without the authority of the king, and some of us want the authority of the king without accountability to produce the fruit of the kingdom. There are some very irreligious people who love Jesus. They love his kindness and they love his love. They love his care for the poor and the lacking, but they may reconsider their affinity when they see him to be a name caller. Here in this text, he calls people whitewashed tombs, hypocrites. There are a few recorded instances where Jesus called people particular names. In fact, this one we're looking at today is quite a rant. We're looking at one of these encounters where he uses the word hypocrite very specifically. Jesus uses this term 17 times in the New Testament. This term was not loaded back then as it is now. It comes from an ancient word uh, that just means actor or pretender. It didn't have a negative connotation in its day that, any, that anybody can measurably now discern until Jesus started using this word, but out of place. So was Jesus a theater goer that he understood what an actor meant? Well, possibly, we don't know, but there is uh, an argument, an interesting one, that, uh, that there was a theater very near where Jesus grew up and him being in the profession of carpenter with his dad, it would have been very plausible that he would have played a part in some part of the erection or maintenance of this theater production and would have had access and exposure to the theater world, at least in some way. Nevertheless, whether that is how it happened or not, Jesus seemed to know what an actor or pretender is, and he uses that word, he borrows it and uses it in a different kind of context. We, use, we see him using this not of actual actors, but of those in position of religious power. Now, it's interesting, Jesus' teaching about hypocrisy was so compelling that it made its way into the history of, of, of human vernacular so that today it has a very specific meaning when you say this person is a hypocrite. In a book called Unchristian, the authors cite a study that finds this statistic, 80% of unchurched young adults in America have a massive barrier to hearing about faith, they believe Christians are hypocritical. 85% of unchurched young adults believe Christians to be pretenders, duplicitous, hypocritical. We should take note of that because that means that 85% of the people who we're supposed to love and be the good news of Jesus to believe we're being fake. They don't believe us because of that. It's ironic, though, to note that the, the very construct that they are using to criticize the people of Jesus, the people of God, the church, is a construct given to them by Jesus. Basically, 
What I'm saying is if you're one of those skeptics who have been hurt by the church, who have seen the church be duplicitous, who have seen the church say one thing and live another thing, who've seen Christians say something with their mouths and live it differently, if you are one of those with a critique, you have to get behind Jesus in the line. When Jesus started using the term, he was calling religious leaders actors on a stage, those who want to be seen, those who want to be recognized, those who want to get applause. This is perfectly fitting for actors, but it is remarkably out of place for religious leaders. Their calling is to say, follow me, live like I live, and yet they're being duplicitous. It's what's so awkward about uh, the Instagram feed preachers and sneakers if you've ever seen it it's it's hard to look at because it doesn't fit it highlights preachers who live in particular opulence while they're supposed to care for the poor and the dying i'm not saying preachers should parade their kids in all the shirts with holes in it and shoes that are worn through uh, as has been done in the past as a manipulation tactic but i think it is important for us who carry the values of christ to believe and proclaim and live the same thing. Thomas Aquinas is famously reported to enter the presence of Pope Innocent II, before whom uh, he, he displayed the large uh, amounts of money that the church has accumulated. And the Pope observed, you see, the church is no longer at an age in which she said, silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas' response was, true, Holy Father, Neither can she say to the lame, rise up and walk. See, we lose our power as witnesses to Christ when we live in hypocritical ways. Jesus' declaration of his own ministry that, that, that begins from Isaiah was, I came to preach good news to the poor. Anyway, his point is this. He is calling out any form of religious pretense. He was perpetually pointing out the condition of the inner person as it stands in contrast with the behavioral display. He was exposing them for what they really are. That which is hidden from view comes into light. They needed an intervention and Jesus was doing just that. Now, there are two ancient questions in human existence uh, that you might have heard before. What is a good life? What is the good life? And who is a good person? These are important questions. They inform philosophies of being and existence. Now, regarding the good life, very briefly, Jesus had these sayings from the famous Sermon on the Mount that's worth going to look at, but he would use the word blessed is and then describe somebody who's experiencing what he believes to be the good life. And just as a, as a side remark, the, what he describes is remarkably uh, in contrast, in con- uh, contrary to what we believe in our cultural day the good life is supposed to be. But that's not our focus. Our focus is the good person. <laughs> The condition of the human heart is what Jesus always focuses on when he is preaching about the good person. Why does he do that? Because he understands that behavior flows from the heart. That behavior changes when there is heart 
transformation. Dallas Willard said, we spend most of our time, uh, most of our, uh, our efforts of discipleship doing behavior modification instead of heart transformation. In other words, we are recreating hypocrites who can act a certain way, but their hearts have not been transformed. Their inner life contradicts their visible behavior. And so from our text, we see this particular saying, Jesus goes, woe to you who live these duplicitous lives. What does this mean? Now, in South Africa, there's a saying uh, or, or this idea uh, that we call Diblinda Shambok. It's, it's an idea of a whip, like a stiff kind of whip um, uh, th- th- that is used in, in many different kind of settings in, in Africa. Um, and Diblinda Shambok is basically the blind whip. It means that there's consequences for the things that you do. It means that if I am prideful or if I approach a particular situation with pride, something's going to happen that'll humble me. It will come back to me. It will be a consequence of my actions. Now, though that is helpful, that doesn't even come close to the connotation that Jesus is trying to do here. He's not just saying sowing and reaping. He's not just saying there's going to be a consequence for your actions. He is saying that the idea of woe, uh, woe to you is that there will be divine judgment, judgment from God for those who live duplicitously. We should take note of that. Then he speaks particularly to the Pharisees. Now, we kind of look down on the Pharisees. They've gotten a bad rep in our day. But in those days, we have to remember they were the revered. They were the honored. They were the ones that seemed to have religion all together. Here, Jesus is calling them out. Now, remember, Jesus is not calling out another religion. He is not calling out irreligious people who are not acting the way they're supposed to be acting. He's calling out those of whom he is a part. Jesus reserved somehow the strongest warning of judgment and hell for those, not for those outside of the church, but for those inside the church who say one thing and live another. Thomas Cahill said this, Any Christian who imagines himself morally superior has only to glance at the subsequent history of Christian persecution of Jews to realize that Christians have been far more successful at rejecting Jesus than any Jew has ever been. At the core of hypocrisy is deception. Washing the outside of the cup to Assume to be clean, but inside it is gross. Charlie Mackesy is uh, a, an artist and a speaker that we use um, particularly in Alpha, but he has this particular illustration that he's used before that has always stuck in my mind, partly because it's about Marmite, which is not something found easily here. But if you've had it, you would know why people don't eat it in America. It's a, it, it, it's a thing. It's this black substance that you can put on things. It's very salty. Uh, anyway, Marmite is in a jar, a little jar like jam, pitch black. And one night he got home and his house is pretty disorganized. He is an artist through and through. Uh, Sorry for the artists who I'm calling unorganized, but he is disorganized. 
and he gets to his kitchen and he hadn't replaced a light bulb in the kitchen. In other words, he couldn't see very well. He was hungry. And so he walked up to his pantry cupboard and he took, he felt around, found what he thought was the, the Marmite jar. And it was, and he pulled the Marmite jar up, but he hadn't put a lid on it for a while because the lid was gone. So he just left it in the cupboard. It's a very sticky substance, like super sticky, it, worse than preserves or jam or whatever you call it. And, uh, and so uh, it didn't have a lid for a while. And so he took it out, pulled the spoon out, stuck the spoon in the Marmite jar and just had a spoonful of it. And it tasted absolutely vile. He spat it out instantly, ran to where the light was to see what was happening. And without him knowing, between him losing the lid of the jar and the moment that he took the spoon, a mouse had climbed into it, gotten stuck, and had been dead in there for a while. He thought that that jar was fine just by looking and feeling the outside of the jar he could not see inside. That feeling that you just got hearing that illustration, that is what Jesus is trying to convey. When we make everything around us look good, but our lives do not, our inner lives do not agree. Whitewashed tombs is what he calls them. Tombs that are beautiful and sparkling on the inside, but let's be honest, inside, uh, on the outside, but on the inside there is death. There is death at work when I deceive you to get you to think I am better than I am. There is death at work when I hide my secret dislike for you behind a very polite smile. There is death at work when I pretend to help you when I hope that you actually fail. There is death at work when I portray myself as loving, when inside I'm full of judgment or selfish. There is death at work and I may even convince myself that I am devout or loving or kind. I can be hypocritical without even knowing it. See, there is a public me visible to everyone and I spend most of my time managing the public image of me. The current emphasis on image and, uh, and personal brand through social media is but one manifestation of a plight that we as humans have, have always struggled with, which is how do I portray the best side of me when my life doesn't really agree? So here's how we deal with it according to Jesus. And I have to say this, church, I agree that we cannot measure spiritual success in a way where the Pharisees win. We need to use the measures that Jesus gave us. Jesus gave us specific measures, the fruit of the Spirit, the Sermon on the Mount. These are ways in which to define and display what a Christ-like life would look like. Here's what Jesus did firstly to combat hypocrisy and to invite us to do the same. He came physically to us. The incarnation of Christ, the fact that he was speaking to the, the, the Pharisees in this moment face to face with them is a combat of hypocrisy, not trying to solve a problem from a distance, but being present within it to show a different way. He didn't just fix from a, different, uh, from a distance. Hebrews, in fact, says to us in Hebrews 4 that we have a high priest able to sympathize with our weakness. Why? Because he walked among us. And because of that, we can go to the throne of grace to find grace and receive mercy for our time of need. 
proximity. In light of Jesus' step of incarnation, I want to encourage us, church, to avoid being the church who, who are full of hypocrites. We need to be with people who can see more than just the shiny parts that we get to display on a Sunday. It is vital to live the way of Jesus, to be deeply rooted in community, to be known even the bad parts. Proximity matters. The first thing Adam and Eve did after uh, they sinned, after they rebelled, was they tried to hide themselves. That is still the tendency in our hearts. The second is self-awareness. Jesus emphasized the heart and not behavior change. It begins with an acknowledgement of my own heart. I have to acknowledge my propensity to want to look good, to look better than I actually am, doing things because of my reputation, preserving my image. I need to develop the kinds of practices that encourage heart evaluation honestly, Spiritual practices. We have a page on our website that has spiritual practices. Those practices aren't there to look good or to compete with one another saying I'm better. Those are there to evaluate our hearts, to teach us how to become more authentically who Jesus created us to be. Someone once said, the truth will set you free, but it will first make you miserable. And that's a little bit what happens here. When a doctor comes to tell you about some diagnosis, he does you zero favors to lie about your actual true condition. We need to look at the scriptures and we need to daily, every day, have the practice of self-evaluation of my heart, of confession and asking for grace and repentance. Jesus makes sure that we know the human heart's heart tends towards pretense, towards wanting to be admired, to be respected, to be loved, even if we pretend in order to get those things. Now, these things are not bad, but they come as a result. We don't actually pursue them. Jesus here in the text says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts themselves will be themselves will be humbled and whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. And our practice of, of honest self-evaluation is a practice of humbling ourselves. He says, first clean the inside of the cup that, that the outside might also be clean. It is a priority of ours to engage with the contemplation of the condition of our hearts. At another place, he says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but fail to notice the beam in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, while there's still a beam in your own eye, you hypocrite? See, he, he uses that word again strategically. First, take the beam out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It is important that we start with ourselves. In other words, not only is self-evaluation, uh, self-awareness an important part of the spiritual practice, but stopping to criticize, stop criticizing anyone else is a very, very big part of being able to recognize the, 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 the heart condition that I am in. Verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. 
These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You've done the visible things, but the things that are really going to cost you, you've neglected those, the hidden things. Church, let us not be like that. The problem we have is that the movement that Jesus started seems to produce many hypocrites. The bigger problem than that is that I often don't know that it starts with me, that I start with someone else, that I point my finger somewhere else instead of looking at my own heart. Jesus focuses his teaching of human goodness on the heart of a person, the unseen places that we hide so well. It is heartbreaking for me that the faith I confess and have given my life and career to is so saturated with hypocrites. And it starts with me. And I hate that my, my first response when I meet someone is to hope that they don't find, I'm, find out I'm a pastor too quickly just so that they can see I'm at least a decent guy and they should give me a chance. This leaves us, though, in a position of immense potential in a world where the church is perceived as hypocritical. We have the potential to live the true way of Jesus as a church in our neighborhood, to our neighbors, to our families, to the schools, to our workplaces, in a way where people can see what Jesus is really like. To seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. It's interesting that sometimes one of the biggest oppositions we face or critiques we face is that we're too much about justice. Just preach the gospel, leave that stuff, often we hear. But here Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and says, you've actually neglected justice and mercy. And it's a warning, and the warning is of divine judgment, not just a suggestion. What areas of your life do you find your tendency towards wanting to look good? Which areas is the temptation to pretend to have a good reputation? Where does your reputation matter too much to you? That is usually where we find ourselves at work putting up pretenses to gain that particular reputation. Church, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. We approach his throne of grace with confidence because in this time of need, the time of need where my heart needs to be healed from its duplicity, where it needs to be guided into wholeness and authenticity to be who God created me to be, we can for that find grace and receive mercy because we have a high priest who is able to sympathize <clears throat> with our weakness. Let me pray for us. God, uh, very simply, we realize and we confess that it is very easy for us to try to look a certain way but live a different way. And we hear your words today. We hear your words that there is divine judgment for those who actively live that way. We confess that our temptation is to do that. And we're so grateful that we can come to your throne of grace to find grace and receive mercy for this very need that we have. The need to get rid of our duplicity, the need to be authentically true to you, to love you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. 
And so we pray this line from how you taught us to pray, Jesus. Let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come today through these words, through these warnings, through this grace that you give us. Let it come in my heart as it is in heaven. Let it come in my home as it is in heaven. Let it come at my work as it is in heaven. Let it come in my building, my, my, my office building as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come. We pray in your name. Amen.